welcome to Wham Wednesday's episode 12 with me, Bill Yates, from the Wham Summit series of events. Now, while it's all well and good for people like me to go on about what's happening in the world of Wham, when push comes to shove, there's only one group of people whose opinions matter the most, and that's the Wham managers responsible for keeping enterprise networks running. Now, we've heard from quite a few of these guys on the podcast so far, but now we're about to hear from a load more, thanks to the Wham Manager Survey, which is published by Wham Summit co-organizers Telegeography. The 2020 edition of the report has just hit the streets, I believe. So to go over the findings in more detail and what it might mean for the enterprise networking community, we've invited Lizzie Thorne, who's research analyst at Telegeography and one of the authors of the report, to tell us all about it. Welcome to Wham Wednesdays, Lizzie. Thanks for having me, Bill. And that was quite the introduction. Thank you. Oh, oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, for those who might not be familiar with it, I know it's a product that's been coming out for quite some time now. Do you want to give an introduction to what you cover in the report and how you go about putting it together? Yeah, of course. So um, for anyone who is not familiar with telegeography, we're a uh, boutique research firm. We cover a lot of different things in the telecom industry, but we're also responsible for organizing the WAN Summit uh, along with, you know, our colleagues at Capacity, including Bill. Um, And the WAN Manager Survey was kind of born out of the conversations that we've been having at the WAN Summit for you know, years now. Uh, we found that um, there was a need among WAN managers to you know, have an understanding of what their peers are doing, what their networks uh, look like, and you know, what sort of decisions they're making around some of the you know, kind of new network trends like SD-WAN or you know, new, you know, cloud connectivity. And so that's why we started the WAN Manager Survey back in 2018. Uh, uh, the 20, the results from 2019, you know, sort of a 2020 version of the survey, uh, have now been released. Uh, so this is sort of the second year of the survey. The first year covered, you know, network configurations uh, and also SD-WAN. And this year's covers cloud connectivity and network security. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Okay, so did that focus uh, on cloud connectivity and security, was that something you went into the report research period with, or is it something that was coming out of what you heard from the participants? Is it something that emerged in the field work? Right. Um, so this is something that we really wanted to dig into from the beginning uh, for this year, um, because at the WAN Summit, you know, we talk a lot about SD-WAN, but besides that, the two biggest things that seem to be on people's minds is you know, how am I connecting to the cloud? How am I ensuring, you know, good performance for the, my cloud applications? Uh, and then also, uh, you know, kind of on the same page, how am I securing my network, especially if you're moving towards, you know, internet breakouts, uh, integrating, you know, the public internet into your WAN, what decisions are you making around network security? So we really wanted to hear what WAN managers are thinking uh, around those two topics. And so that's why we ended up approaching it the way we did. Well, I suppose that's more important than ever at the moment with the uh, migration out of the office that we've seen in the past few months. In, in, do you want to talk us through the results in those, focusing on those two areas, so on the cloud connectivity side and then the security side? So what did you find was on the minds of the network managers in these areas? Yeah, of course. So I think I'll just start a little bit with some cloud connectivity. Um, so in the report, we focused more on infrastructure as a service. Uh, we just found that that tends to be closer to the heart of you know the decisions that network managers are making and you know what they kind of have control over. Um, 
And we found that uh, multi-cloud, which I know, you know, has been a topic on this uh, podcast before, uh, is pretty prevalent. Uh, almost three-quarters of our respondents had more than one uh, CSP, you know, cloud service provider partner on their network. And, uh, you know, largest group of respondents, around 44%, had two infrastructure infrastructure as a service providers in their network. And, you know, only one in four were only using a single provider. So uh, that is like, you know, a big part of the conversation now. How are you managing multiple cloud service providers on your network? And then also, what is the rationale that leads you to that kind of configuration? You know, we had some people who it was definitely a very deliberate uh, architectural decision. You know, they wanted to be able to spread risk among different platforms and keep themselves from having a vendor lock-in necessarily. And uh, also, just in general, some a lot of people were using different uh, cloud platforms for different things, like you might be using AWS for, you know, more serious engineering work and have, you know, your Azure Office 365 systems running as well. Um, but then you also had people who just kind of ended up falling, not falling into it, but ended up in it not as a deliberate choice, but more that, you know, other groups in their organization ended up pursuing different, you know, cloud applications. And then the network managers are the, one who end, the ones who end up having to manage all those. Um, or if, you know, a company is going through M&A, you know, acquiring a new company that was running on a different network or a different uh, cloud service provider, then suddenly you have these disparate platforms on your network that you need to be figuring out. So we found that that was a pretty prevalent trend among our respondents uh, to be having to, you know, deal with those sorts of things. You've told us the reasons that people are running a multi-cloud. And it's interesting you would bring up M&A because that was actually a topic we had two weeks ago, I think, on the podcast. And, um, there, yeah, there were quite a few areas that came up as throwing up headaches when it comes to M&A. And that, this multi-cloud and multi-vendor environment was definitely one of them. So when, so when a, a network manager ended up with a multi-cloud setup, what are the, what are the challenges that they told you it brings and how do they go about mitigating them? Right. Well, I think some of the challenges is just that, you know, a lot of these don't really play together. Like, they're all very isolated environments. And so at that point, you need to either be deciding, you know, okay, well, this is, you know, whatever platform we have, this is going to be a very disparate system. So we need to be very clear about, you know, what is this certain, like, what is AWS being used for? What is Azure being used for? Um, And another challenge that people found is just that when you're using cloud systems in general, uh, putting it in, you know, putting all the data into the cloud and then having that data talk to each other in there works pretty well. But trying to, you know, constantly be taking data out of the cloud ends up getting pretty costly and like the performance can suffer. So those were some issues that people came across. Um, in addition, when we were talking about, you know, IAS partners, we also just asked people specifically, what IAS partners are you using? Because there's, you know, uh, definitely some dominant people in the market. Um, and what we found was that Azure and AWS were by far the most prevalent cloud computing companies that were being used by our respondents. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is just that AWS, you know, has a first to market advantage in infrastructure, infrastructure as a service. They've been out there longer, you know, sort of first adopters, um, gravitated towards them. 
And now they kind of have a, a pretty large market share. And then with Microsoft Azure, um, they were able to leverage their existing customer base in large companies um, as they migrated their enterprise software to the cloud, you know, Word, Excel, all moving into Office 365, and you also have Teams and um, Outlook. And so because of that, you ended up seeing that these two and were uh, by far the most reported um, among our respondents. And at the same time, uh, when you were looking, when you look at, you know, who has multiple um, cloud providers in their network, oftentimes there was a very significant overlap between people who were using AWS for, you know, various engineering projects or, you know, doing that sort of heavy cloud computing, uh, and then people who were running Azure for kind of different, you know, using it more for specific applications. Is this something you've been tracking from last year? Because I'd be quite interested to know whether it seems that network managers are quite happy with this multi-cloud setup, so having different mm-hmm. providers for different jobs. Have you seen any kind of um, streamlining or otherwise year to year in this? Um, we, so this is the first year that we have really looked at this uh, in depth. Um, I think it would probably be good to go look at the live polls that we ran at WAN summits over the years. Um, I think that there has, if anything, been an increase in the number of CSPs that WAN managers are using, and I think that's because just as the as the enterprise in general starts moving towards cloud computing and shifting applications and uh, uses to the cloud, you end up finding that you know certain platforms may work better for certain things, or just the network managers might not be involved in that conversation from the outset, and so they kind of are the ones who end up uh, managing it even if they maybe would have preferred having something more streamlined, um, which is kind of goes back to, you know, conversations about breaking down silos, um, which is something else that we kind of talked about in this report in a bit of a different way. We looked at that more on the security side, but that's just another thing where as you have, you know, the applications team and the networks team and the you know, security team, the operations team, all kind of moving in this similar direction of like pushing things into the cloud, uh, those conversations are more important than ever to make sure that everyone is on the same page about where data is going, how the network is now going to be configured, and you know how you're going to end up securing it all in one. Well, that's a good way to come on to the second focus that we talked about, which was security. And the point you made about silos and division of labor is really interesting because while we do try and keep the topic kind of at least vaguely technical on these podcasts, we hear time and time again when we talk to network managers that some of the biggest problems they face on the day-to-day are organizational or political. Or, right, the political issues. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. who does what? Who Who's responsible for it? Mm-hmm. What's, what's, the, what's the feeling here among the, among the managers you talk to? Right. Um, I think the biggest thing I heard is just it's a period of transition right now, but people are really, you know, ringing, ringing the alarm bell on the need for collaboration. Um, we asked, you know, a couple questions just to kind of, you know, high-level HR-ish questions about how, you know, networking and security responsibilities are divided in people's IT teams. And so what we found there is that, you know, the majority of people do have separate teams for their, you know, network architecture or operations and their network security teams. Um, But increasingly, they're working together, uh, working closely together. Uh, That's, you know, that response is like about 40%. How uh, very few people have actually integrated teams where, you know, the network security 
is being handled by the same team that is handling the actual network, you know, operations and architecture. Um, but at the same time, only like 15% of people also said that their teams have very little, you know, interaction with each other. So there definitely is, you know, those conversations going on. But when we had, uh, you know, some interviews, because as part of the survey, we also do follow-up interviews with people, which really gets into the kind of nitty-gritty of, um, you know, what their organizations are doing. Uh, it was actually pretty common to hear that even if things are, you know, better now, like the network and security teams are working together in tandem on some of these issues, um, that there has been a history of tension between departments. I think there's kind of been, a, you know, the stereotype of like the network wants to, the network team wants things as open as possible. They want the data to flow, you know, as quickly, you know, through the quickest possible path, the easiest way. And the security team wants everything to be closed. And we heard that, you know, some people in the past, what would happen is the network network team would like, you know, come up with this solution. They would like, you know, have this new initiative they wanted to do. And the security team would look at it after it had all been formulated and be like, oh, no, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And then, you know, either make it unfeasible through, like, all of the security things they wanted to implement or, you know, suggest very expensive solutions, which, again, would just make it unfeasible. So what we're hearing is that what's really important is that the network and the security team are working together from the outset of, um, you know, some of these initiatives like SD-WAN, or any other sort of data transformation. Are the network teams getting more security conscious or are the security teams getting more performance conscious? Or is it kind of <laughs> a meeting in the middle? I think that it's, it's, it's a meeting in the middle. Though I, will, I would say more on the everyone taking, everyone realizing that, you know, security is their responsibility side. Um, especially, you know, and that also kind of ties into zero trust security, which is another thing that we asked about that was kind of a focal point of the security side um, of the report. You know, we asked people, you know, what are they thinking about these new uh, uh, zero trust security strategies and, you know, what things interest them about it? Are they thinking about adopting or have they already adopted? That was like another thing that we really focused on. Can you, can you give us some numbers? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so for, for any listeners who, you know, don't know, I, I'm not a security expert, but basically um, traditionally the network was more perimeter-based security. So, you know, you have your firewalls, you have your, you know, your user passwords, and that's meant, that is meant to keep any bad guys out. But once one of those things is compromised and um, – you know, like a compromised password, compromised credential, uh, a bad actor who's able to use that can then get into the network and move laterally through the network um, as they please. And that is a huge security risk. So there's been a shift from, you know, trust but verify through passwords to never trust, always verify, which is basically um, the foundation of zero trust security. Um, just making sure that, like, you're always verifying a user every time they log into the account, every time they try to access something, uh, and making sure that they can only access what they need to get their job done and not anything that is above their privilege level. Um, so this is, you know, something that's being talked about, but still kind of new on the scene. So we asked people if they had any plans for adopting zero-trust security or, like, what stage they are in adopting it. 
And what we found was that while interest in the zero trust model was high, very few people have actually made the leap into implementation. Only uh, about 8% said that they had implemented zero trust security on some part of their network. But about 20%, you know, said that they were in the process of adopting and about a third said that they were considering it. Um, so there is definitely some movement there, but it's very early days. Uh, at the same time, there was a pretty significant information gap um, among our respondents, about a fifth, so like 20% of people said that they did not even know what zero trust security is. So there's definitely an opportunity there for, you know, vendors or anyone who's, you know, trying to, you know, implement this, you know, there, there definitely still needs to be some education and, you know, spreading of this, you know, this new technology in the field. So you, you reckon it's only going one way? Do you think it's lo- this is likely to increase in future years? I think it's very likely to increase, but there are some pretty significant hurdles, you know, some not insignificant hurdles for any WAN managers who are looking to try to implement this on their network. It can be pretty hard to configure your legacy system into a structure that's going to work with zero trust principles. You know, in the first place, uh, one of the kind of core foundations of zero trust security is to have, you know, user-based and device-based authentication so that you always know uh, and that's kind of, and so you know when um, you know anyone who is not a verified user or a verified device is trying to access your network. But obviously, in order to do that, you need to all you need to know every user and device that's on your network, and those need to be identified and tracked. So that's a huge undertaking all in itself, because you know you might have a network that crosses borders, it's in multiple countries, it has thousands of employees and thousands of laptops, desktops, mobile phones, all that stuff. And in addition, you know, a big part of it as well is micro-segmenting the network. So making sure that, you know, sensitive data, uh, you know where it is and it cannot be accessed from other parts of the network. You need to, like, have the right privileges to go and, uh, you know, access that. And so that requires an understanding of, like, where the sensitive data on your network is stored, how it's flowing through the network. You know, if you have one area that's secure, but then that data is moving to an insecure silo, that's no good. And so then you need to start to potentially redesign where your data sits because uh, you might have sensitive and non-sensitive data siloed together with the access granted based on the silo, not the actual data. So that needs to be corrected in order to manage access privileges. And also, at the same time all this is going on, you know, you might have other digital transformations or tech deployments going out. And so trying to keep up with all that data storage and access management while things are changing around it may require some level of automation, uh, you know, machine learning or something to be able to keep track of all that rather than, you know, having your people manually granting access. And so because of a lot of those issues, when we talk to people, uh, even people who are interested in zero trust security, you know, in interviews, they mentioned that, you know, this is going to be a really long road for them, uh, three to five year rollout window because there's just so much preparation needed in advance you know, or even just like greater levels of automation or data processing in order to just keep track and make sure this system is actually working correctly. Uh, I think that one one kind of caveat to this is that, you know, applying this to your entire network, that could be a huge undertaking. But there's a lot of people who are just looking at little pieces of this. Some of the most popular features, we also asked people about, you know, what features of zero trust security are more most interesting to you? Like, what do you actually want to really implement? And a lot of the password management stuff 
there's two things like the passwords management stuff. So like multi-factor authentication mm-hmm. and then also single sign-on, which is just um, reducing the number of passwords that your user has to manage. I think MFA is like 80% uh, of respondents were interested in that. And then single sign-on was about 60%. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of docs you need to have in a row to get zero trust yeah. security right, but the the motor the will the will is definitely there. Um, I'm interested to know, did any of your field work coincide with COVID? Uh, we finished up our collection period for this version, this published report in November, so not really. But you know, collection efforts are still ongoing right now for uh, you know this year's survey, and we also added an, ad- an addendum about, you know, COVID-19, how people's, you know, how people approach that, what happened to their network and, you know, what sorts of long-term changes do they expect from the rapid shift to work from home? So those are, those efforts are still ongoing and we've already gotten some really interesting results. Part of like this 2020 report was to see where people are out with their SD-WAN deployments. And for a lot of people, the answer to that is it's going nowhere because we can't even access our offices right now. Yeah. To put a box in, you know, so. Wow. So SD1 on hiatus. That's interesting. <laughs> well, the, the final question we'd like to ask is not related to the report. It would be totally random and the weird one Wednesday question. Oh. So that being said, would you rather be a reverse centaur or a reverse mermaid? What is a okay? Is the reverse centaur kind of like a Bojack Horseman, like just person so a, with a horse? Head? A person, yeah, a person with a horse's head, or okay. a person with a fish's a fish's a fish head, or a fish body. I don't know. Mm. Would, would, I'm not sure if the fins are included in this. Actually, didn't really. Think I think the most through. important thing is are the gills included? The gills, <laughs> the gills are definitely included. Okay, then I would definitely go with reverse mermaid because then I could just swim away from everything that's going on right now in the world yeah, living sounds pretty nice um so regarding the report how can how can we get hold of it like i said the published report is out um you can go to the telegeography website and you know fill out a form to get in contact with our salespeople to potentially get a copy of it and uh, if you're a WAN manager uh, if you take the survey, you can get a copy for free, so you definitely should. Yeah, definitely. So, Lizzie, thanks very much for coming onto the podcast. It's been really interesting to hear some uh, sneak previews of your findings. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll be back next week with a new guest. All right. Thanks for having thank me. Have, have a great one.